What would you think of a, a God who would reward equally two individuals at the end of their lives, one of whom had lived a faithful, righteous life, seeking to please God and obey his will, and the other who had never obeyed the Lord, had no intention of obeying the Lord, and in fact uh, rebelled openly and continually against the Lord. What would you think of a God who equally rewarded those two individuals with the same reward? He would not be God. God cannot do that because of God's perfect nature, including his perfect justice. And therefore, the God of heaven has made clear in his word that if we are to receive the reward that awaits the righteous, we are going to have to be among the righteous. And at the same time, he reminds us that the unrighteous will not inherit that eternal home of the soul, tragically. And he also reminds us through his only begotten son that there will be few who will find that narrow way that leads to that eternal reward. Could someone spend his life teaching false doctrine, although he lived a good moral life and sincerely believed that what he taught was truth when in fact it was contrary to God's will? What would you think of a God who would reward that individual on the equal basis with the one who loved the truth, obeyed the truth, and taught the truth all of one's life. Again, he could not be God and equally reward both those individuals. So you see, God cannot reward the rebellious or the false teacher in the same way that he rewards the righteous and the teacher of truth. He makes that abundantly clear. And in the epistle that we are studying now on Sunday nights, Second Peter, we are in a section of that great epistle that makes it abundantly clear that the justice of God, the justice of God is indeed just, and that indeed he has given man every opportunity to inherit the reward of the eternal, the eternal reward of heaven ultimately, the paradise of God initially, but at the same time, we recognize and God reminds us that punishment awaits in the day of the Lord those who reject his will. In Second Peter chapter 1, you recall, in the last verses that we studied there, he spoke of the prophecies that did not come by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's verse 21 of chapter 1. But by way of contrast, as we began chapter 2 last time, Peter reminds us there were also false prophets among the people, despite the fact that there were prophets who, who spoke the will of God by the Holy Spirit, who inspired them to do so. There were also false prophets among them, among the true prophets, as there are now, as there would be, he said, false teachers among you. As we studied last time, these teachers will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And tragically, as he reminds us in verse 2 of chapter 2, many will follow, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And by covetousness, verse 3, they will exploit you with deceptive words. 
But then he reminds us, for a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. God is aware of their false teaching, and God will bring them into judgment. Now, as we continue in this context, as we previewed last time at the close of our study, the Apostle Peter is going to bring in three illustrations or examples to point out very clearly that God is not going to overlook the work of these false teachers in whatever time they manifest themselves, in our time or in former times as they have or in future time as they no doubt will. God is not going to overlook that error. And he uses three illustrations to point that out. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and we'll look at that word translated hell in the New King James and the King James, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. That's his first illustration, and we'll stop there and take a few moments to examine this illustration. The illustration is that God has punished even the angels of heaven who at one time sinned, despite the wonderful opportunity they had, despite the fact that they were created as good beings, they sinned. What was their sin? Well, here in this context, we are not specifically told what their sin was. We get some insight into the matter, however, by looking at the one-chapter epistle of Jude. And Jude speaks of the angels who sinned in his epistle and talks about those who did not maintain their proper habitation. This is verse 6 of Jude. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They did not keep their proper domain. The indication is that they rebelled, certain angels did, uh, against God. We get some further insight, perhaps, into Peter's reference here when we look at the qualifications for elders, as a matter of fact. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, and one of the qualifications of the elders uh, mentioned in verse 6, not a novice. An elder is not to be a, a novice. Now notice what is further added, though. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Now it is from that verse that the idea is gained that uh, Satan, the devil, was a created being, a created angel, that he was created good, and certainly the angels are created beings, and obviously we know for a fact they were not created evil. God didn't create anything evil. Everything God created was good. But the indications from these passages that we've looked at and the one under consideration here in Second Peter is that there were angels who rebelled and that the, uh, the rebellion had its basis in pride, according to 1 Timothy 3.6. That's the indication there. Falling into the condemnation of, uh, of the devil, that is the same condemnation as the devil, if that's what is meant by, by Paul's writing there, that being pride. We certainly know that pride is a subject that is dealt with abundantly throughout Scripture. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
of the seven things that God hates, pride is among those seven things there in uh, the book of Proverbs. Pride is condemned and humility is exalted throughout Scripture from Old Testament to New. And so there is a continual emphasis on the importance of that genuine humility and the condemnation that is issued against pride. But it is clear from Peter's statement that there were angels who sinned. And that these angels, because of their elevated position and because of the wonderful privilege they had, that when they sinned at that time, they were not subject to redemption, tragically, but rather to simply, simply to condemnation. Hebrews 2.16 may give some insight into that fact. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. The angels were in a wonderfully exalted position. Think about it. And to rebel, being in that privileged position, and yet to rebel, God did not spare them, Peter says, but cast them down to hell. Hell, the word hell there, is the word Tartarus. It is the only time that that word Tartarus is used. The word translated hell here in the New King James and the King James is not the word Gehenna, which is the word proper word for hell, that is the eternal uh, abode of the wicked. Hell, Gehenna. This is a temporary abode, if you will, and the word that is used is Tartarus. It is not a word we find anywhere else in the New Testament. It is a word that actually had its origin in, in Greek mythology, and it was uh, used by the Greeks to speak of the place where the titans who were the enemies of the gods, were cast down as they rebelled against the gods. Well, we know all that is fiction, but nonetheless, that abyss or that pit or that place of darkness or that Tartarus, that was the word in the, in the Greek, uh, among the Greeks that was used for that. Peter apparently uh, simply uses that word, which would have been familiar to his readers, though certainly he lends no credence to uh, Greek mythology, obviously, when he does, but simply uses the word, uh, a word with which uh, they would identify to describe a temporary realm of punishment where those who are among the wicked await the final judgment, including these angels who sin. Then when we come to Luke 16, 19-31, we get a further insight into that temporary abode where the rich man found himself as he lifted up his eyes in torment it is clearly or it is generally uh, thought to be completely identified with what Peter is writing about here. That temporary place of punishment where the unrighteous spirits uh, await the final judgment. But the realm as a whole is the Hadean realm, Hades. And in that realm you have Tartarus, the place of the unrighteous, where they await the final judgment. And you have Paradise where the righteous spirits await the final judgment. It was paradise, obviously, into which the Spirit of our Lord went as he gave up the ghost, as it is said in Scripture, and died on Calvary. To the thief on the cross, he said, Today you shall be with me, where? In Hades. Well, he didn't say Hades, but yes, it was Hades. But he specifically identified that realm of Hades called paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. The other realm of departed spirits, Tartarus, 
uh, if indeed it is identical to what Peter describes here where those wicked angels await the final judgment, and generally it's believed to be, that's where the unrighteous spirits await the final judgment. We'll note in a moment that they are not without punishment now, but they have that punishment now, and they will have that punishment after the final judgment as well. In cast them down to heaven and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And so they await the final judgment in a place of punishment even now. And his point is this. Do not think that these false teachers will be able to teach as they do with no consequence, no judgment upon them. That judgment will come just as surely as God did not spare the angels themselves who sinned. But his second illustration then is in verse 5. And that second illustration concerns Noah. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. When we go back to Genesis chapter 6, that's where we find the record of the flood. As God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every thought of the imagination of his heart was only evil continually, and God was sorry that he had made man, he repented, or that is, he was sorry that he had made uh, man, and he determined to destroy mankind. But Noah and Noah's sons and their wives were saved from the flood. Here Peter... Here Peter uses this illustration to point out that God did not overlook the unrighteousness of those who were wicked in the days of Noah. But he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. He was a righteous man, Genesis 6 uh, verse 9 says, uh, after saying Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6 eight. Uh, these are the generations of Noah, the next verse says. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And he was a preacher of righteousness. That is, Peter says, he preached righteousness. He preached to the people of his time that they should do right. That's what the simple definition of righteousness is, is right doing, or doing right. And Noah, very bravely, very courageously, and continually preached righteousness to the people of his time, in that age that we call the patriarchal age, prior to the giving of the law of Moses. But Peter here uses the illustration to point out that God did not spare that ancient world, but he saved Noah. He's going to come to the conclusion, if you will, that if God could save Noah and his family in a world that was so wicked, then also he can save the righteous today. And his next illustration further reinforces that. In verse uh, 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Just as he delivered Noah from a world of wickedness, he delivered Lot from a city, from cities of wickedness. And so he talks about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mentioned briefly last time that there are those who look at the condemnation 
of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know that uh, sodomy is a term that comes from the name of the city of Sodom, and that homosexuality is clearly condemned in Scripture, and that it was widely practiced in these cities, and that it was the angels themselves who were being protected by Lot as he had invited them into his house, as the men of the city had gathered and said, let us uh, have them that we may know them, that is, that we may know them sexually, the physical uh, relationship, the homosexual relationship. And yet, as I mentioned last time, there are those who seek to defend homosexuality in the name of so-called Christianity by claiming that the sin of Sodom had nothing to do with being homosexual or involved in homosexual practices, but that it was extreme lack of hospitality, that they were extremely inhospitable to these angels. If you can even fathom that kind of argument. It's hard for me to even get my mind around someone even putting that forward, seriously putting it forward. And that gang rape was, uh, uh, was the, the problem, not the, not the normal, as they would say, practice of homosexuality, but the gang rape, the inhospitality, inhos- lack of hospitality that they were just most inhospitable. There's absolutely no way to look at what God said about Sodom and what he did about Sodom that could possibly lead one to conclude that homosexuality, the mere practice of it, gang rape notwithstanding, hospitality notwithstanding, there is nothing that would indicate anything other than God's clear condemnation of that practice. Not only then in that patriarchal dispensation, but clearly when you come to the Mosaic dispensation and within the law of of Moses, man lying with man as with woman is an abomination. And it carried the punishment of death. Oh yes, Ezekiel talks about the fact that uh, those of Sodom did not... uh, did not care for the needy and did not take care of the poor uh, and mentions abominations in that context. But the abominations certainly included the homosexuality. And yet there are those who will grasp the failure to care for the poor and needy and say, well, there's your problem. There was your problem in Sodom. They didn't care for the poor and the needy. They were inhospitable while completely ignoring the abomination that God clearly, clearly condemns. And so there is absolutely no defense whatsoever for the practice of homosexuality and the example, the example, look at it, the example is an example of God's condemnation of that practice. When you look at what Peter writes about it, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to whom? To all of us for all time to come. And tragically, we live in a time where more people than ever are completely ignoring the example that Peter said we should be paying attention to. It's hard to believe, and yet it is the case. Making them an example to those who afterward would do what? Live ungodly, including the practice of homosexuality or any other sexual sin for that matter or any other sin for that matter. Sin separates from God. But to try to use the Scripture to defend the practice of homosexuality is blasphemy gone to seed. 
That's exactly what it is, and it's tragic. It's tragic beyond description. Now, look at righteous Lot in verse 7, though. He condemned those of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered righteous Lot. And he says something here very important to us about Lot. Lot made a choice, yes. And he regretted that choice, uh, obviously, later on. But Lot, nonetheless, while he was in the midst of all that all of that debauchery, all of that abomination, all of that ungodliness, he remained righteous. He remained righteous. And he sought, obviously, to be a righteous uh, uh, influence, and it may very well be that that's what God, obviously, that would have been what God wanted him to do while he was there. But he was delivered because he was righteous, and notice this, he was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Doesn't that suggest again that we're talking about homosexuality and that that's included there? The filthy conduct of the wicked? I don't, I know that not caring for widows and orphans is, is wrong, but generally the Bible doesn't describe it as filthy conduct, does it? Failing to care for widows and orphans is not generally described as filthy conduct, but this is filthy conduct that Lot uh, witnessed and was oppressed. By. And in what way was he oppressed? Look at it. The next verse, verse 8 says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Tormented their, his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, Lot becomes an example to all of us by this, by this action that Peter describes. An example of the kind of attitude that we should have toward what's happening in America, what's happening in the world today. Should our joy and our happiness be destroyed by what others are doing? No, that's not what we're saying. But should we be oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked in the same sense as was Lot? Should we be mightily concerned about the sin that surrounds us? Absolutely. So much so that we should determine not to be a part of it, obviously, not to participate in it ever, but also determine to do whatever we can to snatch precious souls out of the fire to do everything that we can to teach those who will listen and to spread the truth of God's word. And we must never become guilty of glossing over what is clearly sin in our country and in our world. And yet I believe that we live in a country where that is happening more and more. And I think the example of the Approval of homosexual practices is a clear-cut example. You don't need any better example because it's not so much that that many are practicing homosexuality, but a growing number of individuals are approving of those who do. And that is undeniable. That is undeniable. We must never be among them, obviously. But the fact that there is a growing number of those who are approving it should vex our righteous souls from day to day because of the changing attitudes that occur 
and we must determine and redouble our efforts to do all that we can to change that in every way that we possibly can. That's what we're striving to do really with the television program, isn't it? That's what we strive to do when, when we step into this pulpit or our teachers step into classrooms or we step out of this building and have opportunity to teach and influence other people. But we are seeking to make a difference with people and to change the thinking of those who have gotten caught up, caught up in the tolerance movement. And it has indeed grown dramatically in recent years. Lots an example for us. He serves as an example of the kind of attitude we should have toward sin. And finally, verse 9, and we'll stop with verse 9 tonight. The Lord knows. Then the Lord knows. Then the Lord knows. In other words, here, here we are. Here are, here are the false teachers to whom we're introduced in, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Do you think they're going to be able to get by with their false teaching and never be brought into account? Never be brought into judgment for so doing? No. If you think so, consider the angels who sinned. God didn't spare them. If you think so, then think about the ancient world that was destroyed with the exception of eight souls. If you think so, then think about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and what God did there. That's his whole point. Don't think that these individuals will go unpunished. The Lord knows how to do two things, obviously, here that are mentioned in verse 9. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and that word temptation is the same word in the original that's used back over in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, where Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Here it's translated temptations, and it can mean either or both, depending upon the context. God can deliver his people out of any situation if they will seek that means of escape that he has provided. They can deal with the trials. They can deal with the sufferings. They can deal with them. Will they be immune to them? No. Will we have to go through some very difficult trials? Will we be tempted to sin? Of course we will. But God knows how to deliver the godly, Peter reminds us. But he also knows how to reserve the unjust. Now here's the phrase, under punishment. And that phrase, under punishment, is a present participle that indicates even now they are reserved, but they are even now under punishment, those who have died. Unfaithful to God, in rebellion to his will, they're under punishment even now. And they are reserved for the day of judgment after which their final declaration will be heard and their destiny will be eternally sealed. You know, sometimes people ask, well, if people are under punishment, these spirits are under punishment now, what's the point in the day of judgment? What's the point in having a day of judgment? They already know they're under punishment. Yes, but they haven't heard. They haven't heard those words depart from me. And it may very well be, and I could certainly imagine it would be the case, that if I were one of those unrighteous spirits who had departed this life and was now under punishment and in torment as the rich man even now is, 
I think I could hold out some false hope that surely this is going to change. But once the day of judgment comes and I hear those final words as one of those unrighteous departed spirits, then I know it can never change. It's hard for the finite mind to fathom something like that. It is for me. But what I'm thankful for is that if I will make sure I'm among the righteous, I won't ever have to deal with that. All I'll have to look forward to is a heavenly escort by the angels of God into paradise and ultimately hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter, bow in to the joys of your Lord. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, you cannot anticipate hearing those words. And if you're not one who has remained faithful having become a Christian, you cannot anticipate hearing those words. But that anticipation can be yours this very night by obeying the gospel of Christ if you haven't done so, believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and then living faithfully the Christian life in anticipation of that heavenly home one day. If you need to come back to your first love as one who has wandered from the truth that you once loved and obeyed and lived, then we plead with you to do that so that once again you may anticipate those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. As we stand to sing, we encourage you to come.